All right. Glad to see all of you this evening. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon our time of study this, this evening. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thou art great and mighty. A God to, uh, to be uh, worshiping and one whom we delight to lift up, to magnify. Lord, we... We boast not in ourselves, we boast in Thee. We boast in the the gospel of salvation that has uh, redeemed us and that has saved us and forgiven us of all of our sins and granted to us everlasting life. Lord, we ask that Thou would bless this time of study, that Thou would give to us hearts that are ready to learn that we would truly be disciples, that is, learners of Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't simply fill a seat, uh, but that, Father, our hearts uh, would be filled with Thee, our minds would be filled with Thee. We pray, Lord, to bless this time of study and cleanse us of our sins and receive us as we come before Thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38 this evening. <clears throat> Once again, that was John 13. Verses 31 through 38. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now. I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. So we, in John chapter 13, just again very quick review, 
the Lord Jesus, uh, on the night in which he was betrayed, uh, introduced and instituted uh, the Lord's Supper after uh, the Passover meal. And uh, after the Passover meal, uh, the Lord Jesus, and before the Lord's Supper was instituted, goes to all of his disciples and begins to uh, wash their feet and tells them that uh, this is an example to them to serve one another. Then Jesus identifies uh, who his betrayer is. And uh, so we're coming uh, to that to that point in the life of Christ where he is about to be betrayed that very evening as they leave this upper room and go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he identifies the betrayer as Judas. He gives the, the piece of bread that's dipped into the vinegar. He gives that to Judas. He identifies who it is that it will be his betrayer. And when we begin with verse 31, it says, Therefore, when he was gone out, that's talking about Judas. As soon as Jesus identified Judas as his betrayer, it says in verse 27 uh, that Satan entered into him. And so we see there that, uh, that this was, again, the turning point. Uh, Satan entered into uh, Judas, and Judas became, uh, followed through with his betrayal of the Lord Jesus, went to the chief religious leaders and uh, began to give the information they needed to know as to where they could uh, find Jesus that evening. So this is coming again to uh, a close uh, where it will lead to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Now, in verses 31 and 32, and, and I just want to also say, last time we, we spent the entire study uh, talking about a, a question related to, that is often asked, and I'm not going to go through that question again this evening, but the, what we spent our time uh, discussing last time was whether or not uh, Judas was present at the Lord's Supper uh, or whether Judas had already been uh, dismissed, whether he had already left at that point when the Lord's Supper was instituted. And I indicated there are, there are good, sound um, men from the past and in the present who hold either position that Jesus was present, uh, or Judas was present, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Others that uh, know he had already left uh, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. I lean toward the uh, position that Judas was not present at the time the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus. Uh, by that time, he had, Satan had entered him once uh, he was identified as being the betrayer immediately afterwards, uh, he, he left and then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, what makes this difficult is it doesn't even uh, mention the Lord's Supper. So we don't really know uh, in this particular instance what point the Lord's Supper occurs because in John 13 it doesn't 
that's not mentioned um, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the Lord's Supper is specifically mentioned at, uh, at that time. But and it seems as though Matthew and Mark uh, would support the position that uh, Judas was not present, whereas Luke would seem to support the position he was present. And as I said, that's not a contradiction. Um, there is, again, a reason that each of the Gospel writers uh, organizes the events the way that they do. Sometimes those events are not organized chronologically. Sometimes they're organized uh, thematically, uh, logically, with certain themes in their mind, but they're not necessarily chronologically ordered. And so, again, that's, that's kind of where um, uh, we left off. And I, I just want to say, uh, before we begin on the new material, that, uh, you know, when we come to these types of matters uh, in the scripture and um, we find uh, throughout history that there has been this differ differing opinions with regard to some of these issues like this and they're not certainly defined uh, in our Westminster Confession of Faith or the uh, the larger, shorter catechism, we don't find that issue dealt with uh, there. Uh, obviously, it could have been dealt with if the, the Westminster Assembly and the uh, scholars, the teachers at that assembly, the ministers at that assembly thought it was uh, that um, you know, significant and they wanted uh, to do so, they could have. But I think that uh, it teaches me uh, that we have agreement in the truth uh, not on every detail that we find in Scripture uh, because, again, um, every detail in Scripture, though I'm not saying that the details in Scripture are not important. Everything God has revealed is important. And so it's not as though we say, well, that's secondary, it's unimportant. No, uh, even if it's not something that we would say specifically uh, speaks to our salvation, that we need to believe this, that it's necessary to believe this in order to be saved, that still doesn't mean that we just say, well, it's secondary, it's unimportant. No, everything is important, but not everything is equally clear in Scripture. That, that I think we have to affirm. Some, that which is necessary for salvation, God has made very clear. Okay, that, that is, that's called the perspicuity of Scripture. It's a theological term that, that basically says Scripture is clear for matters related to salvation. Uh, but not every matter that we find in the Bible is as clear as those matters. And that's why, again, we have a confession of faith. That's why we have catechisms to identify those uh, truths in scripture that the church has rallied around and upheld uh, throughout history. And so um, uh, the passage that, that I think that we should uphold in these matters would be Philippians 3, uh, verse 16, which says, <clears throat> Nevertheless, 
whereto we have already attained, when he says we, meaning the church, that we have already attained, reached, by way of agreement, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. So um, Apostle gives us, I think, uh, basically a, a standard to follow. That to which we have already attained historically as a church, as God's people throughout history, and has been defined for us in faithful subordinate standards like the Westminster Confession of Faith, like the Catechisms, like other documents, our covenants, uh, that we walk according to, that we walk in agreement with. But things that have not been clearly defined um, in Scripture and have not been upheld in history uniformly by Christ Church, then we uh, basically say this is not as clear. We're not going to um, separate by way of fellowship over these other issues that have not been so clearly defined throughout history. So just wanted to say that uh, before moving to the new material. So the new material uh, in verses 31 through 32, here it's talking, Jesus is talking about the Son of Man himself being glorified, God being glorified in him. Um, and if God is glorified in him, God will glorify himself in, in Christ and will straightway, right away, immediately, very soon uh, glorify him. So I, I want to just uh, emphasize here that uh, we see the glory that each of the persons of the Holy Trinity bestows upon one another. Here we see, for example, the Son glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. You see, that tells me there's no rivalry there's no rivalry, there's no competition between the persons of the Holy Trinity. They're not vying for preeminence or they're not vying for, you know, uh, uh, calling or, or uh, anything else. They, they are glorifying one another. And I think that there's something very important about that that we need to uh, realize uh, that... Very often, whether it's in a family, or whether it's in the church, or whether it's at work, uh, people are vying for preeminence, uh, vying to be, you know, the one at the top. Sometimes, again, uh, in order to get to the top, uh, you have to step on people. Um, uh, that's the way of the world, um, not the way of Christ, but that's the way of the world. One has to step on somebody else to get to the top. But uh, that's not the way that Christ has uh, ordered uh, the, uh, the church, ordered uh, families. There are those who are called to leadership in the family. Um, uh, God has established uh, the husband and the father uh, to be the head within the family. Uh, the, the Lord has established uh, ministers and elders uh, to be within the church, to be the visible uh, leaders 
not the head of the church, Jesus alone is the head of the church, but to be visible leaders within the church. You know, at work, uh, there has to be a boss. There has to be somebody who uh, is leading and is directing. You can't have uh, several different bosses where they're competing one with another. And that's, that's, again, we see in the Trinity, that's not the... That's not what happens. Though, again, each person in the Trinity has the same divine nature. Uh, they're not, they're not uh, trying to shove one person of the Trinity out of the way to be, uh, to be preeminent. And I think that, again, um, that's, that's important for those, again, who are, who are uh, being led, those who are not the leaders to realize um, that it should not be uh, the uh, attempt and endeavor of people who are not leading to push those who have been called to be leaders out of the way. But at the same time, um, we who lead should glorify those who are led, just as those who, who lead or, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, those who are led should glorify those uh, who are leading. In other words, there should be a mutual respect. There should be a, a mutual desire uh, to, uh, to, for leaders to love, to care for those who are being led, and for those who are being led uh, to uh, respect the authority that God has entrusted uh, to, uh, to those who are being led and to pray for them. Um, only the Divine Trinity, the Holy Trinity, uh, is perfect. All we who are as leaders are certainly imperfect. We need your prayers. Uh, we need to be upheld. We need to be uh, strengthened because we are frail. We are weak as, as leaders. And so, again, um, I... I just leave that with you um, to, to consider um, that we should cast away all rivalry uh, in uh, these various places that the Lord has placed us. In fact, I would just uh, leave this with you before we go to verse 33. Uh, I believe it's an evidence of growth in maturity when we are no longer uh, jealous at the success, promotions, blessings of others, uh, the fact that there are those who are called by God to, to be leaders in the family, in the church, in the nation, uh, that, again, when we can uh, bless God for establishing that, and we can willingly thank God for that and, and find our place uh, in that, um, I think that it indicates we are growing in, matu in maturity. But when we cannot accept that, when we resist that, and we say, no, I'm not going to submit as a child to my parents. I'm going to... I'm going to rebel against my parents. Um, that does not show maturity. That shows immaturity. Um, um, and uh, again, 
that goes both ways with leaders. Uh, when uh, leaders abuse their authority and, and power and simply it becomes a power trip, likewise, uh, that shows immaturity. It doesn't show mature, loving leadership. Uh, we, we don't, uh, as leaders, get behind and snap the whip. Um, we set the example by going before those whom we're leading and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Verse 33, Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. So Jesus here addresses uh, the disciples. Now there are 11. Judas is left. And he addresses the 11 disciples as little children. Now, we might think that's, uh, that's putting them down, you know, calling them little children. We kind of think, as little, uh, think of little children as, uh, as those that are, um, you know, uh, childish, right? Uh, uh, as those who are um, immature, um, foolish, uh, not wise. That's not the way that Jesus is using the term, I don't, I don't believe. I think he's using the term little children in, a, in an affectionate way. He's, uh, he's calling his disciples little children from the perspective that he cares for them. As he cares, as a father cares for their little children. As a father loves their little children. Uh, or his little children. So again, Jesus here is addressing his disciples as little children that he has great affection for, great love for. It's not putting them down. It's basically lifting them up to say, I, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, love you, and I'm calling you my little children. Now we might say, well, how is it, I thought that there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How is the, the Son calling his disciples his little children? Is, is the Son becoming the Father? Uh, is the Son seeking to usurp the place of the Father, God the Father? But uh, in Isaiah 9, 6, it talks about a son being given unto us and his name, one of the names given to him is uh, Everlasting Father, uh, Prince of Peace. Uh, Jesus is not the Everlasting Father in the sense that he is the first person of the Trinity. Um, God the Father is the first person of the Trinity. Jesus as the Son is the second person of the Holy Trinity. But what it's saying and what Jesus is saying here in John 33, uh, 13.33 is that Jesus becomes like a father to his children. He cares for us as a father. He's using that as an illustration of the way he cares uh, for us and loves us as his dear children. And so that, I think, is, is the point that Jesus is making and addressing them as his little children. And then he says that he, uh, 
is leaving. He's, he's preparing them. He's, he's already, on a number of occasions prior to this time, tried to prepare his disciples for the fact that uh, he's going to be uh, dying. But he's going to be raised again. So he's brought that up. Um, we've come across that two or three times uh, in the gospel uh, or other gospel accounts. But here again, he's doing the same thing and saying, a little while, I'm not going to be with you. In other words, bodily, I'm not going to be with you. Jesus is with us all the time, spiritually, but he's going to be uh, not with them bodily uh, because, again, he's going to bodily uh, be crucified, buried, raised from the dead, ascend into heaven. That's where his body is, uh, is in heaven. He's not bodily here with us. He doesn't appear bodily. He, he's seated at the right hand of God until he returns in his second coming. And so um, uh, this is the Lord Jesus uh, telling them very soon this is going to come to pass. Uh, and and uh, he says, you're not going to be able to follow me. Where I'm going right now, you're not going to be able to follow me right now. Uh, and this question will come up again uh, toward the end of this chapter. Peter's going to raise the question once again, and uh, we'll say more about it at that point. But, um, but uh, Jesus is making clear to his disciples that uh, he is going to be leaving them. Now, I'm, I, I don't know how to um, uh, put ourselves entirely in the place of the disciples when Jesus said that. Uh, it was not a part of their thinking that Jesus was going to be leaving them. It was a part of their thinking that he was going to reign from Jerusalem, establish his kingdom, there uh, set up an earthly kingdom, he was going to crush the Romans, and uh, uh, that was in their idea of what Jesus was going to be doing. The idea of him being crucified, buried, raised from the dead was not a part of their, their understanding at that point. So here's Jesus saying, I'm not going to be with you. Um, I'm going to very soon be taken from you. And you can't follow me where I'm going right now. So, you know, try to imagine what a shock that probably was. You know, Jesus had not put it in such clear terms prior to this time. At least we don't have anything recorded in Scripture that he had put it as clearly as he puts it here. You know, imagine, uh, imagine um, someone in your family coming up to you. Uh, children, you know, you know your, your mom, your dad saying to you, um, I'm not going to be with you uh, very much longer. Very soon, I'm going to be leaving and you can't follow me. I mean, can you imagine just hearing those words and what it would do to you? Um, the disciples here, I mean, they lived with, um, they, uh, they uh, were with the Lord Jesus day and night for three and a half years and uh, had 
invested themselves, you know, their lives uh, into this ministry with the Lord Jesus. And here he's saying, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not going to be with you much longer. And that really shook Peter, as we'll see in verse 36 when we get to that point. That really shook him up. Verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. <clears throat> Probably as we think, um, if we again uh, have time to be able to put into words what we want to leave with uh, those whom we love when we're about to die, um, we're going to probably be thinking about um, what is most important to us. Um, and uh, we're not going to probably, at least in my own mind, uh, not that you won't have a time to, uh, to share maybe some funny stories from the past or something like that, but I think you're going to want to leave to those, uh, you know, who are there with you, that which you consider to be very, very important. And Jesus here in leaving with his disciples this new commandment uh, is giving to them what is uh, so very important to him. Remember again, uh, the other gospel accounts, for example, in Luke 22, verse 24, in this very night, uh, at the, around the table, uh, at the same night that they had the Lord's Supper, the same night that Jesus washed their feet, the same night they were arguing among themselves who would be greatest in the kingdom of, of, uh, of God. When Christ set up his kingdom, they were arguing back and forth who would be the greatest among them. So is it any wonder against that backdrop that Jesus would here emphasize uh, this new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you? That I think is very important to realize. Now we, we know that Jesus summarized in Matthew 22 uh, verses 37 through 40, the Lord Jesus summarized the two great commandments. First commandment, the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, likened to that, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Lord Jesus doesn't focus on the first of those commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because not because it's uh, no longer the first great commandment, but because I think in the context of what happened and their debate among themselves as to who would be greatest in the kingdom of God, that needed to be addressed. That needed to be addressed by the Lord Jesus. And he does address it when he says, I'm leaving with you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That was the immediate need. Not that the first commandment to love God was thrown out the door and that it was no longer 
the first great commandment, but that because of what the disciples were doing around the table, that was something the Lord Jesus uh, needed to address right then and there. What is the... What is... What is it that makes this commandment new? A new commandment. Now we can think of uh, the word new there maybe in two different senses. One sense would be that this commandment has never been revealed and it is now revealed for the first time. And that would not be true because in the Old Testament, for example, in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. So it, this is not a new commandment in the sense that it was never revealed uh, until this point. And a second sense would be um, a new commandment in the sense that it is not brand new, but that it is renewed. And so it's new in the sense of it being renewed. Um, the new heaven and new earth are not brand new. They are a renewal of the, uh, of the old heaven and earth. Um, uh, we're new creatures, a new creation in Christ. Not brand new in the sense that there's that we did not exist before, but we are made anew. We are renewed. So there is that sense in which new is used for to be renewed. And I think that's how it's used here, that Jesus is giving a new commandment. It's being renewed. And the basis for this commandment uh, that makes it renewed is that Jesus has appeared. Jesus has come, he's lived, and he is offering his life as a sacrifice for his people. Uh, that they did not have in the Old Testament, though they had the commandment to love one another, all they had w were types and shadows in the sacrificial system and uh, in other of the ordinances and ceremonies of the Old Testament and in certain of the offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king, they had, they had um, a promise that Christ was coming, but not until he came and he actually gave his life did they have this renewal of this commandment. And so notice that Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. He didn't stop there. That was, that was revealed in the Old Testament, that ye love one another. What's, what is added is the renewal part, as I have loved you. That is what makes this a new commandment, as I have loved you. So uh, that's, that for us uh, makes this commandment, uh, it gives it a, a, a life uh, that the, those Old Testament saints uh, did not understand fully, did not know uh, completely, uh, but that we do, because Jesus has come. We have seen what he endured. We have seen what he 
faced. Think about it for a moment as, as I have loved you. What did Jesus endure for you? Did he, did he take the easy way out? Or was he willing to go to such uh, extremes and depths to show his love for you? Did he stop halfway? Did he go three-fourths of the way of showing how much he loves you, his people? Or did he go all the way that he was willing even to bear the wrath of his father to become a curse before his father, our become a curse for us that we might be set free from the curse. Again, consider that's the love of Jesus Christ for us, his people. That's who we are to follow. That's who we are to imitate as I have loved you. And when we, we, we exhaust in our own limitation, we think, I've exhausted love for this person. I can't love this person uh, through uh, this situation. I can't continue to love this person uh, uh, any longer because of how this person has offended me or treated me or whatever it may be. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. So, again, that's the example that we are to follow, is the Lord Jesus. Not uh, the example uh, of uh, some, um, uh, someone we know, um, not the example of uh, even your minister, uh, but, uh, but the example of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the example that we're all to follow, as I have loved you. Would you not agree with me that though we are to love uh, in a general sense, you know, the children down the street, we're, you know, uh, we're, we're not to despise or hate our neighbors. Uh, we are to love them, we're to do them good and not injury, not harm. We're to care for them uh, where they have needs. Would you not agree that we are to care for the children down the street? Uh, we're to love them in that sense. Uh, but also, would you not ag agree with me that we are especially to love our own children? that our own children are in a different category. Um, uh, you know, as, as men, as women, we're to love, you know, uh, uh, in, in a, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to love one another, the, the husband uh, of, of one in the church, or the wife of one in the church. We're to love uh, as brothers and sisters one another, but we are especially to love our own spouse. We're to have a, a particular kind of love uh, for uh, those uh, that are called, that we are called uh, to be united with in that way. And so, again, um, 
that's what the Lord says. For example, in Galatians uh, 6.10. In Galatians 6.10 we read, <clears throat> As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So notice the especially. Um, we're to do good to everyone, but we are to have a, a specific and particular care for those who are fellow Christians. In 1 Timothy 5.8, likewise, 1 Timothy 5.8, we find a similar statement. But if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Notice again, we're to care for our own that would be our own maybe extended family, but especially we're to care for those of our own household. We're to have a particular love and care for them. And that's, again, what Jesus is saying here with regard to our love, the love that we have for one another. We're to love uh, even our enemies, Jesus says in Matthew 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, we're to love our enemies. But we are especially to love one another as fellow Christians. As fellow Christians. And we're not to simply love one another in word, but we're to love one another in deed. Uh, that, again, in 1 John uh, uh, chapter 3 um, that we're, our love is not simply to be, you know, I love you, but it's to be expressed as well. We should say, I love you. We should communicate our love in word, but we should also communicate our love to one another in deed. Uh, because mere words mean nothing if there is not the acts and the deeds to follow that. And uh, again, that means um, that kind of love uh, begins in our homes, it begins with our spouses, it begins with our children, it begins with our parents, and then it spreads out into our church. That kind of love, the love of Christ, that's the love with that new commandment, love, is to uh, is the the word agape. That is Christ's sacrificial love, laying being willing to lay down our lives for one another. That is how Jesus loved. He was willing to lay down his life for us. And again, I know we we've heard this, you know, all of our Christian life. Uh, these are not new truths, and yet, uh, how often do we not practice them? How often do we struggle within ourselves to love those who offend us, to love those who mistreat us? Um, it's easy to love one another when the other person is, is showing us love. Showing us respect. 
But that's not really the test of love, to love those who love you back. The test of love is to love those who don't return that love. That's the real test of Christ's love within us. And Jesus says in verse 35, but by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. That's not to downplay. Jesus is not downplaying the importance of truth as being a most important mark of being a follower of Jesus Christ. He's not downplaying the importance of what we believe as being important and an identifying mark uh, that people will know us that we're Christians by what we believe. That's important. That's very, very important. But again, what he's emphasizing here is, is that unbelievers will know that we're followers of Jesus Christ by the love that we have one for another. As I said, whether, again, we've been offended, ill-treated, the love that we don't reciprocate in the way we've been um, ill-treated, we don't repay in like manner, that we rather seek, again, to be kind even when we are mistreated instead of getting angry and upset and and uh, saying well if that's the way you're going to treat me I'm going to do the same to you and so we we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and that's the way it's always going to be unless we say that's not the love of Jesus Christ the love of Jesus Christ is not being bitter within it's not being resentful within That's not the love of Jesus Christ. Especially for those that I said and that the Word of God teaches who are nearest to us. Those who are closest to us. If if we cannot show the love of Christ to those who are nearest to us, then I dare say anything we show to those who are not near to us is kind of a facade, is superficial. Because that kind of love must begin with those who are nearest to us. And then when it is realized in our relationships with those who are nearest to us, then it will be real when we show it to those who are not so near to us. That doesn't mean we cannot, uh, you know, this love doesn't mean we cannot still uh, correct uh, those who need to be corrected. It doesn't mean we can't rebuke those who need to be rebuked um, uh, when there's sin that's involved. It doesn't mean that uh, love doesn't mean that we avoid correction or rebuke. It simply means that when we rebuke and when we correct, we must rebuke and correct out of love for that person. Not out of bitterness and hatred and not out of anger. In our children... Uh, are not going to learn and and know um, that we truly love them when we correct them unless we make it very clear to them and not simply uh, administer whatever discipline that we uh, would administer, but we seek to assure them that we love you 
We care for you. We do not want you to walk contrary. This isn't me trying to get even with you as a parent for what you've done. This is not me trying to repay, you know, uh, a penalty for what you've done, punishment. This is me as a parent saying, I am correcting you because I love you. Sometimes, again, you know, we only judge um, as those who are correcting or rebuking. We only judge what we think the other person ought to realize uh, in how we're disciplining, you know, or how we're correcting, or how we're rebuking. We, we say to ourselves, well, he ought to know, or she ought to know that I love them, and that's why I'm doing this. But, but I, I think that if, we, if, if the person we're correcting and we're rebuking, whether it's someone in our family, someone in the church, if they're not convinced that we love them in our correction and in our rebuke, then I, I think that something is missing. Uh, I, I dare say we're not doing the kind of job that we ought to be doing to communicate that love if, the, if that person that we're correcting doesn't realize that we're doing so because we love them, we care for them. And so I think we need to do a much better job, not just to correct, which is important, not just a rebuke, but to assure the person. And, and that doesn't simply come at the moment that we're correcting, but we've needed to show our love for that person, you know, through thick and thin. Uh, in other words, if there hasn't been a pattern of showing love to that person, why should they believe us once we correct them that we truly love them? If there hasn't been something to demonstrate that in our lives and the way we, we have cared for them. So that's so important. Otherwise, I, I submit to you, our rebuke and our correction is going to fall most of the time upon deaf ears. It's just not going to be believed if we don't show that we truly love uh, one another. And those who are doing the correcting and the rebuking do not have not shown uh, that they love the person that they are rebuking and correcting. What generally happens in that case is is that uh, uh, the heart of the person being corrected or rebuked, if if that person is not assured of the love that that the rebuke or correction comes in love, will typically harden uh, his or her heart. It won't soften his or her heart. And so, just to wrap this up, uh, in verses 36 uh, through 38, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. So Peter now returns uh, to 
the statement of the Lord Jesus uh, back in verse 33 where Jesus said, uh, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. It, it almost seems as though uh, Peter uh, did not want to uh, spend a whole lot of time thinking about or interacting with what Jesus said about this new commandment of love, to love one another as, as Christ has loved them. He wants to get back to the issue of where Christ is going and why he can't follow. Which again, I, I, I don't want to say on, you know, on behalf of Peter, I, I certainly would not want to uh, say that that was not motivated out of love. I believe Peter loved the Lord Jesus and he didn't want to be separated from the Lord Jesus. Uh, I think that's very clear from what he says there. I want to go. I want to follow you. Why can't I follow you, Lord, um, if you're going to be leaving? Uh, and Jesus says basically to Peter, um, you, you are going to uh, follow me. Um, not right now you're not, but you are going to follow me. Um, and uh, afterwards you will follow me. And Peter did indeed, obviously, um, uh, Peter did die, but he followed the Lord not only in going to heaven as the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, Peter, uh, at his death, uh, his soul ascended uh, to be with the Lord in heaven, um, but he also followed the Lord by way of a cruel death. Um, again, if we consider the testimony that's been left behind of uh, Peter's death, uh, historically, not, not scripturally, that uh, uh, it, it appears he died a very cruel death um, and uh, that he um, said that I'm not worthy to be crucified uh, as Jesus was and, uh, and was crucified upside down uh, rather than right side up. Uh, and, and so again, um, uh, Jesus is saying to him, you know, you are going to follow me to heaven. That was... Uh, that was, uh, whether Peter understood that uh, fully, I, I'm not sure that he did at that point. I think he came to understand what the Lord Jesus meant by that. Uh, but uh, but uh, Peter says in verse 37, I will lay down my life for thy sake. And this is where Jesus says, uh, says uh, by way of a question, Really? You'll lay down your life for me, Peter? You're going to deny me. You're going to deny even knowing me three times uh, before the cock uh, crows. And here we, uh, I think, uh, compare that with, say, in the other gospel accounts in Matthew 26, uh, when Jesus told Peter, that he would deny him three times. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, uh, Peter, you know, rebukes the Lord, he corrects the Lord, he denies the Lord is, is, is telling the truth. He, he basically says, no Lord, what you're saying isn't true, I'm not going to deny you. Even though, you know, God 
um, cannot lie, though Jesus cannot lie, uh, he was going to contradict the Lord Jesus. Now, again, part of that may be the love that he had for the Lord, but it was also pride that he could not submit himself uh, to believe what Jesus said. How Peter should have acted when the Lord Jesus said, you're going to deny me three, three times. Uh, he should have said, um, uh, I need to fast and pray that I not enter into temptation. The, uh, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. That's what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane for on behalf of his disciples. That's what Peter should have done at that point. But he didn't. Uh, he was, I think, though he had love for Christ, nevertheless, I think it was pride that uh, stood in the way here of him being able to receive what Jesus said to him and to be prepared for the temptation that was about to fall upon him uh, in denying the Lord Jesus. So here's the final thing just to leave with you. Uh, We need, again, to realize that uh, we're not as prepared as we may think we are for various trials and temptations that are going to come our way. We need to realize that unless we are humbled before the Lord, unless we pray um, uh, daily, Lord, uh, help me to face whatever is going to come my way this day, let me not think I'm so um, strong that I can withstand the temptation that uh, uh, will be brought uh, before me today, uh, that we too are likely to fall. Uh, because that's an attitude. When we think we cannot fall, that's, that's just the temptation that Satan is looking for because when we think that we're invulnerable, we're not vulnerable to temptation, but regardless of the temptation, no matter what, what it is, we are all susceptible and vulnerable to temptation. Granted, we are more vulnerable, certain of us, to certain kinds of temptations, others more so to other types of temptation, but, it, but we ought not to think that any of us are not susceptible to even the most grievous kinds of temptations under certain circumstances. Uh, Peter could not imagine himself denying the Lord Jesus. That was inconceivable to him that he could do that. And yet he did. He denied him not once, but three times. Three times. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That's the warning to us all. Jesus says in John 15, For without me you can do nothing. Paul says in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Not in yourself, not in myself, but in Christ. And that comes again by way of preparing ourselves, watching, praying that we enter not into temptation. For let us recognize about ourselves the spirit is willing, but the flesh is very weak. That's true of all of us. 
very weak. And so let us not be humble, or let us be humbled, even, let us be humbled even by the fall of others. When others fall, even enemies, even those that have mistreated us, when they fall, do we rejoice in their fall? Do we rejoice in their fall? Or are we humbled by their fall that that could happen to us? That's the attitude I think that we should have, that we don't rejoice in the fall of others, but we take heed lest that same thing happen to us in us exalting in pride that we're beyond being tempted to fall in that same area. Okay, we'll stop there. Let's stand and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do bless thy holy name. We give thee praise and thanksgiving for for the wondrous love of Jesus Christ that didn't go part of the way, that didn't build a bridge to thee half of the way and we have to build the bridge the rest of the way ourselves, but built a bridge to thee all the way by offering his life, him becoming the bridge uh, that was a, a chasm, uh, that was a gap that we could not cross over uh, to, uh, to the Lord our God. We could not reach thee because of our sin, but he has become sin and he has become that bridge. And Lord, we thank thee for him and for that example of his love. And may we uh, not uh, be those who uh, merely pattern our love after uh, examples. So we can find examples uh, in human history and that, that those examples are an encouragement to us. But let the supreme example of how we are to love one another be that of the Lord Jesus. And any man that we follow, let it be only because he follows Christ or she follows Christ. We pray, Father, take the truths that are found in thy word that have been expounded this evening. Uh, give to us faith, and love, and obedience to walk in thy paths of truth and righteousness. We confess we are weak. We confess the spirit is willing, but indeed the flesh is very weak. And therefore, we fall upon thee for thy strength. Be made, pow uh, made uh, most powerful uh, in the midst of our weakness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.